What's up everyone, welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans, and I'm joined as ever by Psycho Les, aka the genius, aka the rugged child, aka um I was just trying to think of all the different rap monikers I know. Who's who's the rugged child? Shaheem. Uh who's uh, Psycho Les? Les Dennis. He's from the Beat Nuts. Uh, um, is it? Uh yeah, what else? Haslam. Tikal, uh it's Method Man. What about just like Tony uh, Starks? That's MF Doom, isn't it? No, it's um what's his face? Ghostface Killer. He always talks oh, about Oh he's Tony as, Starks, doesn't he? Yeah, always, yeah, who is Iron Man? So yeah. You can't just you can't just have one persona. So anyway, Nathan Kush is just one of your names, isn't it? Yeah, speaking of uh, Iron Man, I, I saw the Avengers yesterday, and no spoilers, but the whole Wu-Tang Clan are in it as well, so they are confirmed as being part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What, really? Yeah. They're actually in it? Yeah. Okay, that's pretty good. Uh, how was it? We still haven't, after like after two years, I think in like the first episode, you were like, oh, no, we're going to do like a, and have my own thing, we're doing like film reviews. Yeah, I bought, <laughs> bought all the costumes and everything ready. Uh, yeah, this is all right, it's, it's a standard fair, like, you know, yeah. it's, it's entertaining. Like when we first started doing the pod, I remember like I used to be like, I don't get anything, like why you watch like films like that, and now I can't watch anything that's remotely bleak i can only what i can only watch escapist like like entertainment as well yeah pretty much um that doubles for like kind of american expansion propaganda <laughs> like i've actually i've been reading a really interesting article about oh, the symbiotic relationship between hollywood and the military and how like the military advises hollywood like you may, must betray this like this and well that's the thing with top gun wasn't it is um they're like yeah you can use all this footage because it's a massive recruitment for oh, of course um, it is it's yeah. just one big anyway that's a different uh topic i'm sure we'll have to do a, a podcast on that We've at done some one, stage on what militarism oh we did yeah we can do yeah. a few more yeah do more we'll do as I get more as, as I get more articles out we'll just do that's yeah. what we're doing it I just do as from this point forward we'll do nothing but podcasts on militarism <laughs> what do you want to change the name of the podcast to just militarism pod uh, guns pod <laughs> shooting guns radio alright so today we're going to talk about neoliberalism so this is following on from the last podcast where right at the end um, Mike Jackson was talking about you know, neoliberalism and its effect, you know, kind of ties in nicely with... The yeah, but I mean, like, every single, I guess, every single episode we do is sort of, there's an underlying theme, which is a, you know, critique of capitalism and neoliberalism. And, and, you know, we talk about neoliberalism a lot on here, on Twitter, and we realise that it's one of those terms that could maybe, we could do with explaining, because um, I obviously sometimes forget that not everyone is as intelligent as I am. But no, it, it is actually particularly re- re- relevant um, because... And, and similar to like, you know, a Bordeaux episode and Gramsci episode, it is something that is everywhere in everyday life, isn't it? It, it dictates absolutely everything. Yeah, and it's one of those ones, I think, once you put, do the pullback and reveal, like, you know, and show people what it actually is, then you can understand most things a bit better. It's actually really important we talk about it in the Welsh context because particularly recently in Wales, I've gotten some... Even though I deleted the Twitter app because I want to, like... <laughs> Sort my head out. Um, oh, do you know, I did read best quick like uh, discussion or you know diversion to this. That best way to kind of cut down on your time is to set your screen to a grayscale so you don't see color, so you don't respond as as much to it. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll do that. Then. And the apps they're designed similar to um, you know in casinos you pull on the the mm-hmm. they're designed like that to kind of constantly uh. give you new information. So it's not like you're ever done with them. 
you're constantly pulling the lever on refreshing to kind of get new info. Well, deleting the app has definitely helped. I threw my phone in a river. Yeah, that's but good I, that as well. Was a, that was Shoot, I shot the phone. That was because a duck was annoying me and yeah. I was doing anything to hand. So I launched <laughs> Pinged it. Pinged it like... So anyway, I chat to people about neoliberalism in Wales on Twitter uh, recently and um, I was, I think, I believe I was like slating devolution or one of the old AMs, what's her name, up in uh, North Wales, maybe Anne Cloyd. She was saying devolution's been a failure, blah, blah. There's a, a claim which is really central to Welsh politics and it cuts across all political, well, all left-leaning political parties. And there's this assumption that, you know, Wales is somehow outside neoliberalism. And that's something that's been in Wales ever since Rodri Morgan's Clear Ed Water speech back in 2000 and whatever it was. Which, clear Ed neoliberalism speech. Well, you know, the speech is a load of shit, just like Rodri Morgan was. A, but anyway, ever since then, there's been the assumption that, you know, England is neoliberal. Wales is outside neoliberalism. And what people do, they go, oh, look, you know, we've, we've done these economic policies, yada, yada, yada. And it's a really common misperception that neoliberalism is like, it's just like an economic policy. Whereas, as this podcast is going to show, is that neoliberalism actually has two components. You know, So neoliberalism is, firstly, a way of organising the economy of society. But secondly, neoliberalism is a set of social relations. So basically, it's a way of thinking about the world that we've sort of internalised this about. Um, I forget who said it, but there's a, there's a quote that like, neoliberalism is in our hearts and in our souls. That's that a, re- a Brian Adams song. Wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah. But that's a really important uh, way of thinking about it because... Contrary to, well, lazy uh, analysis in Wales, neoliberalism doesn't just end at the Welsh border, you know, and indeed, like, you know, indeed, there are, you know, economic policies in Wales, which are just straightforward neoliberalism, but because it's a Labour government, they call it something different. So we'll go through what neoliberalism is, then uh, we will talk about it in a Welsh context, basically. As is usual. Okay, let's begin. So... Uh, I did a, a lecture in Bath where I was teaching last year on neoliberalism and it was really useful. And as I was doing it, I realised that neoliberalism was one of those terms that centrist commentators have used and sort of deliberately claim not to understand. I put a couple up, Dan Howden, my pal, he actually did like a slideshow of all the different times that various like well-paid media commentators and politicians took to Twitter to say, oh, I don't understand what neoliberalism is. Um, you know, Raphael Baer, something along the lines of, like, usually safe to stop listening when someone uses the term neoliberal. Christian Guru Murthy, well, I think the term right-wing is clear, but neoliberal is pretty meaningless. You know, Jess Phillips saying, like, time to apply, like, the Hitler rule. Every time anyone speaks about neoliberalism, they've automatically lost the argument. I think more lately, David Baddiel has weighed in, saying he doesn't understand neoliberalism as well. I mean, David Baddiel had like a double first in English from Cambridge. It is it is very brave for all these um, like kind of high-profile people to admit the limit of their knowledge, isn't it? But, but I mean, obviously, as with other things, all of this is completely bad faith. You know, of course, they understand what it is, and they are claiming to not know what it is, so they don't have to have a, a debate about it. And the main reason they are claiming to not know what it is is to discredit Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it's worth reading Joe Kennedy's book, Authentocrats, which hopefully we'll review. Mm. Um, and in Authentocrats, Joe Kennedy talks about how centrist commentators have weaponized this idea of the authentic working class, which is implicitly stupid and doesn't talk about things like neoliberalism. And so when left-wingers like you know Corbyn and stuff talk about neoliberalism, they can say, oh, well, you know, normal people don't care about that stuff. But all it is is a diversionary tactic. They don't want people to, to actually cr- start critiquing the current state of affairs, which they've obviously done very well out of. Um, I mean, this, this is like Owen Smith's playbook, isn't it? Like, you know, I don't want your frothy coffees. Yeah. I'm yeah. your uh, 
we actually should do an episode on Authentic Arts. I think we should do it soon. Um, yeah, it's a class book. So, it? although we did say that we were going to do neoliberalism two years ago, but it was probably one of the first episodes we we're going to do, and here we are over two years later. So, I will also say sorry to everyone we've promised to come on the pod and <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it will happen. It, it they will do, they do eventually happen. happen, but like maybe two or three years after we. St- yeah, that we've initially said. So when I say like to you, hey, how about like April mm. or May? I mean, I don't mean like this year. Yeah, it might be we purposely don't put a year on the end yeah. of it. We're just like, yeah, like, 2021, you can come on. So neoliberalism that, you know, apparently all these like well-paid commentators don't understand. There have been actually 400,000 academic publications which have used the term neoliberalism. And yeah, so even though and it should certainly be on A-level syllabuses, uh, it's a very basic concept. But um, And David Harvey's intro on neoliberalism is really cheap and short. So yeah, there's no, no excuse excuses. really. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the interesting and most common tropes that we, we should probably like engage with from the start is... Um, the idea that neoliberalism isn't an ideology. You know, people say it's not clear, it's not an ideology. So, you know, so this disappearance of ideology, we see a lot when people make very bad right-wing decisions and claim they're working sort of with what they've got. You know, they're just being realists. Mm. Do you remember in Haringey, with the Labour Council um, got in trouble, the right, very right-wing, like Blairite Labour Council? Bins, wasn't it? Oh, no, no, the, um, the Haringey Development Plan, oh. where basically they were essentially going to sell off all existing social housing in um, Haringey to oh, a yeah, massive yeah. private developer. People got mobilised. It was fantastic. And they eventually sort of stopped this awful mass privatisation of uh, housing. And in the end, all the people, the Blairites who were leading the council sort of stepped down. But like there was this Claire Cober, who was the Blairite leader of the council. She wanted to sell off all social housing or council housing to a massive private developer. That was rejected by like the Labour NEC, local Labour MPs and every single resident. But Coba wrote like an article in The Guardian, obviously, and her defense was like, she is a pragmatist. She was like, I'm not obsessed with ideology and that her opponents... <laughs> I'm not obsessed with ideology. I just yes. mindlessly reproduce it. <laughs> yeah, so her opponents were like purists and they were obsessed with ideology. So this is a common trope of centrists, you know, that like, you know, I am not ideological. You know, the only ideological people are the left or, you know, indeed the far right. You know, we are not ideological we're just smart people basically who deal with like facts so she says in a guardian interview i mean the guardian's so shit isn't it like i mean it is. it's unbelievable like, apart from Aditya, it's like it's so unbelievably like craven and like terrible and and just awful anyway so she says in a guardian interview i would say you have a responsibility as a politician to engage with the world as it is rather than how you wish it would be so you know the decision to sell off every council house in the borough to a private company and to not build council houses to replace them you know that is like non-ideological yeah that's like pragmatic common sense and like this is where like Gramsci is so useful and so you know you should go back and listen to our Gramsci episode and so one of the reasons Gramsci is such an important theorist of our times and in particular actually for understanding neoliberalism is because of this concept of hegemony and common sense and and just like Gramsci says about hegemonic ideology neoliberalism is so taken for granted that it loses its deeply ideological character so it's become as sensible to you know sell off council housing and things like that as saying you know water is wet or the sky is blue and in, in contrast i mean amidst this deep-rooted like commonsensical view of the world which is like you know, as we'll see as neoliberal there's no alternative so building council houses you know, not evicting people that's seen as like ludicrously radical and ideological and so this is what the podcast is about basically so it's weird as well just how like you know it permeates absolutely everything to like this, you know this is what we th- this is what the second part of the lecture is going to be about um or the podcast even when we yeah. talk about our boy mark fisher rest in peace soldier yeah roadman yeah okay so the foundational text i'd say of 
understand neoliberalism is by Andrew Gamble and it's a paper and it's called The Free Economy and the Strong State and we'll tweet it out. I say that about every yeah. thing I never do. No. We, we will we actually we will we may we may tweet it out. Keep we'll your audience guessing. Um, yeah. And that's like the foundational, probably one of the first uh, articles that sort of explores neoliberalism as like a, a set of policies and philosophies like systematically. He doesn't actually use the term neoliberalism in it. He calls it like social market theorists or liberal political economy. But I say that's a really important text. We'll talk about the history of neoliberalism, which again, apparently isn't real. So it's actually is a clearly devi- defined concept. It's been around since at least 1955. I mean, it was sort of crystallized and practiced really first in the 80s under Ronald Reagan and Thatcher. And obviously in, in Chile, sadly, under Pinochet, Thatcher's pal, as Mike pointed out in the last uh, episode. So basically, if you... Th- it, it, in the th- 50s, wasn't it, and it experimented with rebuilding uh, Germany mm. after World War Two? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that it's worth thinking about what was the contrast like in the, the historical context. So have we done a lecture on the welfare state and welfareism? No, Have we yet. done a podcast? Oh, we will do. I feel like people should people know anyway. So if you think about the welfare state in the UK that was created in 1945, the first Labour government, that's kind of like the, the paradigm of like sort of social democracy, you know, it... Privatised industries became nationalised. You know, there's a mass build of council houses, and there's this idea that you know the economy is has to serve working people um, and has to serve the nation. You got your Keynesian type, of yeah, thing, it's Keynesianism, yeah. yeah. So it's- that was like the paradigm essentially. So that's the UK. What was happening in in West Germany in like the fifties actually was called. They didn't call it neoliberalism. They called it a social market economy. Yeah. And that attempted to blend. It was national social social <laughs> market economy, but, left but they, the they you know, they attempted the to blend like a market economy. So, like you know, so in contrast to the UK, where privatized industries were not all of them, obviously, were taken into public ownership. You know, Germany, most things remain privatized. Which probably, if you go into that, that's got to be to do with the influence of the Americans. I would say in post war reconstruction of Germany. Yeah. So the what's that? What's it called? The um, when they started building it up, it wasn't Bretton Woods, was it? Well. To research it and put it back in the pod. Yeah. Um, not the Marshall Plan. Um, oh no, maybe it was the Marshall Plan. Uh, I can't remember. But Sam Sam Gindin, uh, Sam Gindin and Leo Panich, the book on um, the creation of global capitalism is yeah. amazing. Where it talks about the actual role of British Empire and American Empire in like creating the yeah. e- EU and the welfare state. Because it, it wasn't a case of just like, well, you may have lost, but we'll rebuild you. Yeah. Or America. Yeah. It's just like, well, you know, we need a. Uh, basically a trading partner because now yeah. we're an economic powerhouse after the war. Yeah, essentially. Um, so yeah, they attempted to blend like a market economy with liberal democracy and you know, some elements of like Catholic social teaching. So in the like the original like 1950s version of Germany, it was, it was also accompanied by sort of traditional Catholic values. Although even then, some German uh, religious leaders and like social theorists were expressing concern that the economic model they were practicing back in the 50s was already inspiring people to become selfish self-centered like acquisitive and it was like hampering their moral development grow thin mustaches yeah but it was like you no know, they were arguing that you know this is really undermining the internal yeah. solidarity of german society you know like they were sort of panicking like what's happening to our society because people are becoming sort of selfish and obsessed mm. with money so that's back in the 50s so in terms of the chronology of this i mean i think we, we should probably talk about the maybe the theorists of neoliberalism mm. both as in the people who've identified it like andrew gamble and david harvey and then actually the the sort of philosophers, well, I mean, call them philosophers. Architects. But, yeah, the architects, the idea, yeah, like Hayek and Friedman. Uh, we will have to point out it's not Selma Hayek, is it? No, it's not Selma Hayek. Yeah, no. which is how I, <laughs> how initially I got into reading about neoliberalism. It's not reading about Selma Hayek. Well, I thought it was, uh, she, I was like, oh, she, she's an economist, is she, as well? She's hot. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, and then it's like, oh. All right, so 
how how have we ended up in the UK in this like shitstorm of of like privatization and you know this like hellish nightmare we're in? I mean, the context really is so 1945 with the welfare state, as all sort of communists or you know anarchists will tell you, I mean, social democrats will always run into trouble because you you can't really tame the contradictions of capitalism because you know, you, you know capitalism has periodic crises and what happens is time and time again social democratic parties are left sort of holding the ball when the crisis hits and then they get discredited you know they implement austerity measures or whatever and they're out of power for ages so in the 70s you know we see the the welfare state in the uk enter a period of crisis you know there's a world economic crisis as well it was called the winter of discontent in the uk and so just as labor sort of took the credit for the post-war boom which was you know as we know was built on empire and like america, yeah, american yeah. like repayments and things like that <laughs> you know they naturally became sort of discredited when the model beca- began to falter and so what happens was labor came out of um power i think in you know 1979 there's an election amidst you know mass unemployment and various other um social upheavals and then thatcher gets in 1979 so basically what happened was like keynesianism as a you know and social democracy got widely discredited in the 70s and that allowed right-wing intellectuals we, to actually sneak in and start saying, well, you know, maybe this policy of sort of having an affluent working class and like publicly owned services isn't working. Um, could we broadly say that, that maybe for people who aren't into uh, neoliberal and Keynesian economics as much as we are, that Keynesian would be you know, kind of flood money into like the lower classes and that stimulates the economy and neoliberalism is... You flood into <laughs> don't, yeah, but you're gonna you're gonna give away the whole pod now by oh, explaining it in one in one sentence, yeah. Yeah, so that's not how it works. Please keep listening. <laughs> Actually, this what's really interesting uh, is you know Andrew Gamble in particular draws attention to the role of intellectuals mm-hmm. um, and think tanks in the Conservative Party in sort of taking you know just like Brexit, you know, to put the Overton window out ideas which seem like outrageous at first gradually become normalised and sort of filter into you know, into the press and they get taken almost certain people and popularised. You know, so people like Friedrich Hayek, Milton Freeman, they had these fringe... Echo- Who names their kid Milton? Exactly. Sorry to anyone who uh, Milton. <laughs> sorry, Milton Jones yeah. and Milton Davis. Um, uh, and sorry to my son. <laughs> so, <laughs> Milton. So these ideas were originally quite fringe and then they became popularised by the Institute for Economic Affairs, Centre for Policy Studies. Anyway, so they, they gradually start undermining Keynesianism. And so what... Gamble says about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is often associated, and this is a really important point actually, it's often associated with like liberalism and therefore like laissez faire economics, you know, which means you know, leave your hands off, like leave everything. Chips, yeah, uh, land. Yeah, leave everything to the market. And Gamble says that the problem with the term laissez faire is that it suggests like this passive, like inattentive state, Mm. like so, like the government actually wouldn't do anything, they'd say, oh, we'll leave everything to the market. But you know, capitalist states. Have never been that. So Andrew Gamble says. I mean, you look at the 2008 banking crisis. You know, yeah, if it was truly things. like you know, well, we let these banks fail because, Absolutely. in a sense, they're not good mm. businesses, and this business model is unsustainable. Yeah. But then what happened was uh, public money ended up. Yeah, the state intervenes to save. Yeah. Capital. I think as well. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead, but you know, the idea of like uh, having a, a free market or laissez-faire is that every everyone's on like the kind of same pitch to compete and make products but like as probably find out you know you end up with monopolies you just end up with coca-colas and pepsis yes the key question with neoliberalism if you don't if you switch off by now if you switch off at this stage take this lesson and it will be so where does the state intervene and where does it pull back so the social market doctrine 
or neoliberalism is not that it's against state intervention in the economy, but actually that it wants the state to intervene less in some areas and more in others. And as we'll talk about later, this has real sort of insidious, like nasty effects with, you know, increased militarization of society, um, increased securitization of society. Ironically um, as well, an increased bureaucracy of society. Yeah. And yeah, so so the other one is, so neoliberalism is not laissez-faire economics. That's like the first thing to take away and the state pulling back from like public life. But what it actually is, is restructuring, as you said, Nath, restructuring of the state um, apparatus to serve capitalism. So the state exists now to benefit the market, whereas... You know, obviously it does that to an extent under Keynesianism, but mainly, you know, it, the rationale is, is slightly different under Keynesianism, obviously. And this is interesting, actually. Andrew Gamble says that one of the most important points of departure that neoliberalism makes with the social democratic, like Keynesian paradigm, is that Keynesianism sort of treats the economy as a national unit. And so the success and failures Hell of... a unit. Yeah, so the success and failures of ideas and, like, policies are measured by how healthy they make the national economy um, and this approach includes as you said considering how certain policies impact on like the national working class whereas neoliberals as you'll see all over the world they focus on the the smooth functioning of the market you know stock exchange things like that as their main priority by its very nature that reaches past national boundaries um, and that's why that's why a lot of neoliberals are so obsessed with the eu hmm. you know, because they're not really concerned about the impact it has on the the uk because they, they they view the, the EU as a big one big trading block and a market, and so that's yeah. why they're obsessed it's, with. It's not so much freedom of movement with them; it's freedom of capital. Yeah, and actually, absolutely. So the smooth functioning of the international sort of market is considered to be like an important end in itself for neoliberals. Gamble says that neoliberals all accord. This is a quote. Obviously, I wouldn't use words like this. All accord an importance to markets and the voluntary relationships to exchange establish, which they regard as setting definite limits to what national economic policy can and ought to accomplish. So that's important because it governs their beliefs in the extent to which the state can and should pursue, I know, let's say, like, ameliorative regional economic policies, you know, provide full employment. For new, a lot of neoliberals, they're like, well, the, you know, this isn't the role of the state. People live and die by the market, essentially. So... Literally, in some instances. Yeah. Should we go now and briefly speak about the philosophical underpinnings of neoliberalism? So moving on to like the philosophical underpinnings of neoliberalism, Friedrich Hayek is one of the main evil people. Um, yeah. So he actually, have you heard him in an interview? No. He actually sounds like a kind of uh, Indiana Jones villain. Oh, is it? Looks yeah. a bit like one as well. He's another Austrian. Oh, that's um, right. They don't come off well. No. Yeah. Fair play to Austria. They tried to kind of... Uh, Export a lot of... <laughs> well, they redo their image. And they're like, oh, let's just try with Hayek. Um, all right, so Hayek's thought revolves around like three crucial distinctions. I mean, liberty and democracy, law and bureaucracy, and the market and planning. So he's obsessed with liberty. He's like, you know, so he conceives of liberty as the condition of men in which coercion of some by others is reduced as much as possible in society. And this is like obviously the core question related to democracy. If you read like John Stuart Mill and stuff like that, it's about, you know, the tyranny of the majority. You know, how do you, how do you organize society whilst minimizing, you know, abuses of some people by others, right? So Hayek is concerned about liberty, but like his obsession with liberty basically somehow, I don't know what he was smoking, leads him to prioritize, you know, free exchange and like the market or trading as like the absolute priority and as like the absolute sort of pinnacle of liberty. And this basically leads him to argue that the state 
and others should be banned from intervening in the market or in business in like any in any way at all and so there's loads of ob- obvious implications of this frankly insane conception of liberty so it like it clashes with the notion of popular sovereignty because you know it pl- implies that there are loads of laws which should be beyond the power of the government to alter because you know we don't want anything that interferes in the market whereas obviously the doctrine of popular sovereignty would hold that you know a government elected by people has the right to overturn or make or remake laws and all markets as it sees fit you know that's like the point of politics really this is really important so for hayek like democracy is essentially bad if it impinges on the market because you know you've got politicians who are interested who are elected and they make you know promises to their class or to certain interest groups and that leads them to interfere with the markets or whatever and hayek you know always goes on against like these special interests he calls them democracy encourages interference with the private sphere you know market relationships between individuals and therefore democracy you know understood as like ruled by the masses is dangerous and bad insofar as it impacts on this like mythical free market i don't know it's such a bizarre like thing to think and as you and as you're reading it you realize man this is so niche but it's it's actually surreal that it became like mainstream yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. you know for, for them market you know trading capitalism essentially you know that's like the paradigm of freedom and individual liberty and that must be pr- protected at all costs you know including infringing by, on other people's liberties yeah, essentially well yeah um so democracy like is dangerous essentially and needs to be like controlled and limited so it doesn't impact on the market and we'll see you know that was taken to its chilling conclusion in like chile it's chilling conclusion but yes but democracy is dangerous because governments are swayed by concerns about like living standard unemployment housing markets and therefore you know governments are pressured to intervene in the market and interfere so there are practical consequences which we'll see as we talk when we talk about thatcherism and like pinochet and all that the political consequences of this understanding of like liberty is that the state has to be strong in some ways so it has to maintain the conditions which guarantee individual liberty so hayek identifies you know, the security of property <laughs> free competition between the businesses and stable money so in these areas like the state is strong basically so in things like public services the state is like rolled back like get out of these and the presumption is that the market will automatically supply goods and services at a much lower cost and far more efficiently than the state um, and therefore should be preferred i mean that's why i mean people started like kicking off about public ownership of the railways because there's this assumption that you know privatization of the railways would be far more efficient because you know the logic of competition would like drive down prices and you know basically people would be competing against each one another and then it would all be beneficial for the consumer but that's not what happened was yeah, it? with some of them um they had, was it amtrak or something yeah of course. they had to get bought back in by the stakes they relying on technology that doesn't exist yeah of course i mean there's a guy called john dukes and he expresses this like liberal idea so he says like the efforts of governments to manipulate or restructure systems as subtle and as complex as competitive private industry are as likely to fail as would the efforts of a group of curious and playful children to repair a modern chronometer i don't even know what that is but you know what i mean but there's assumption that government like politicians and you know just are not cut out to get involved they should stay out of it completely well that's Um, that's the old like kind of uh phrase sometimes you abandon around as like oh you know we should give the nhs uh, to alan sugar to run yeah exactly somebody doesn't even know what tax rates are probably yeah but he knows what he's doing because he's a businessman yeah yeah um and this is the thing as well there is like literally 
huge, you know, sections of society that should not be run as a business. Of because, course. you know, if it's a business model, it's looking to make profit. How yeah. do you make profit? You cut corners or, you know... Yeah, I mean, there's loads of, like, wages. obviously empirical ways of, of, of describing how, you know, the, the reality of privatisation is, like, impossibly, impossibly inefficient because it's driven by the profit motive and, you know, that it provides a terrible service to the public. But, mm. you know, obviously not for, like, Hayek and those people. That is not the case you know the perfect markets function sort of perfectly and so after this the government intervening the other special interest that hayek hated was trade unions because trade unions damage the market because they they make things less profitable because they demand things like higher wages health and safety which involves more money being spent you know they um they impede like technological progress and efficiency because they fight the introduction of like machines that are going to take people's jobs and so in terms of the philosophy like and this is really common now a common trope in the uk like unions become seen as like coercive they're like th- they threaten people like they hold people hostage like mob bosses and they're interfering in, in individual liberty so like people say oh you know like the railway strike that stopped you to get get into work that's a trade union you know, infringing on your individual liberty to like work and all that and so they say you know getting <laughs> and also this is like a, an aside but you know Obviously, for capitalists, getting rid of trade unions would be beneficial to the market because it creates more unemployed people, and having loads of unemployed people is awesome because it lets employers pay people less. Was was the mar- what's the Marxist term for that? The, the reserve of, army of yeah. labor. So anyway, this like so the, the TA. Yeah, so, so the state is strong here because the state got to guarantee the liberty of capital and markets where it's hands off, so hands off the market when we make profit. But to do that, it has to be strong and intervene against things like trade unions or special interests. So Gamble says, if the economy is to remain free, this state has to become strong and nowhere stronger than its dealings with organized labor. Okay, so this mad conception of like, you know, what liberty, what liberty is, it's got actually really important ramifications also for employment and employment because, you know, within Hayek and these people who are obsessed with almost like this Rousseau idea, Rousseau, is it Rousseauian? I don't know. This like it's the first time I've ever heard this that like word. free free for all. You know this like this the, the market. Obviously, and if you think of a society like that, employment or unemployment is down to the individual. So you know, unemployment stops becoming a matter of political concern or government intervention because obviously the blame is then shifted to the individuals and institutions who have like failed to adapt themselves to the requirements of the market. You know, like yeah. if they're efficient they would be employed and they're obviously not employed for a reason. This So this was put in a novel by um, the famous Ayn Rand, who was, um, yeah, an absolute freak, who, <laughs> who uh, was a champion freak. of free markets. <laughs> but um, funny enough... They Imagine were- writing novels about, like, the designed to, you know... Well, she's like the capitalist Brecht, isn't she, in a way? Like, she's just... She loves the free market and neoliberalism so much. She actually wrote books about. Yeah, so she wrote The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. And um, Atlas Shrugged a few years ago was made into a film, but I've was, not read either. I mean, I what are they about even? It's just free. So um, there's this guy John Gold. It's about strong men, isn't it? No, so At, you know Atlas, the guy yeah. who holds, holds up the, up world. the sky. Yeah. Oh, is he um, top yeah. man? Nice one, Atlas. Yeah, it does it for free, right? Alleged. But um, she was saying, like, you know, all these <laughs> people were eats clouds. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he lives in a beanstalk. <laughs> but uh, so this guy in a novel, um, Atlas Shrugged, uh, is big business dude. Uh, I guess fed up with all the state rules and builds a utopia in the desert. Mm where, you know, everything's dictated by the market and it's just like, you know, nothing, everything's fine. And then um, it was actually, this is how I found out about neoliberalism many years ago, uh, was that notion was adapted into um, a video game called Bioshock. All right. But this, um, what's his name? Andrew Ryan, which was um, 
is it an anagram when you move them around? The what letters around? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, for New Anrand. Oh, right. So he builds this um, utopia at the bottom of the ocean. But very soon, like, it kind of gets split because of just the huge inequality and, like, kind of civil war breaks out. So in Anne Rand's... Uh, so it's a game underwater? It's a video game. Yeah, Sounds it's not class. underwater. It's underwater cities with, like, loads of art deco, but it was class. just to explore this kind of yeah, notion yeah. and, like, a huge kind of civil war that broke out in between and then you kind of come in. It's, it's absolutely incredible, actually. It's probably game. about 15 years old. Is it, now. yeah? Yeah. Um, so in, the, in Atlas Shrugged, this guy, he builds it in a desert and all, like... Um, big business owners from around the world start going into the desert and you know they don't have problems like who's going to fit the toilet what we're going to do about an army you know police force you know when Anne Rand was pressed about like well what would you do about police force she was just kind of a bit quiet so um funny enough this um Atlas Shrugged book got made into a film and it was uh, produced by the likes of who's that mad um Glenn Beck yeah Glenn Beck was yeah, the producer. yeah yeah so what happened, I, it was on Netflix. The first part of it um, was just like straight up adaptation with some famous actors. Uh, the woman who in it, uh, she, um, she she's the same person who plays the main character in Orange is New Black. However, they couldn't afford anyone to come back for the second one. So they had to like recast all the roles. And by the third time it came around, they couldn't get any funding. So they chose the, um, well, they went to crowdfunder, ironically, to uh, get their um, their movie going. Bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. She's also um, mates with Alan Greenspan. Their, um... And she died like alone and penniless, and she? Yeah, Rand. well, so they had this kind of weird cult around them where they just like do a load of shagging. But what, she in could... the book? No, in real life, she had this like group. I can't remember what the group was called. Wasn't she buzzing, though? Yeah, yeah, but she's like, oh, free ideas, free like oh, know, yeah. movement of people in sexuality, uh, well, sexually. Mm. But she got really pissed off with Alan Greenspan because he started banging someone else and she kicked him out. Well, Greenspan has in the banker. Yeah, yeah, no and Greenspan. So that's how he kind of got his his way in. He made inlays into like you know, really, yeah, with Bill Clinton and everyone. I don't know if he banged Bill Clinton, but I wouldn't probably pass them both. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's just like the philosophical underpinnings dealt with. And I, I don't really want you to go out and like read Ayn Rand or I like or Hayek. Cause I will give like, a quick shout out to my partner who um, was reading Ayn Rand, ironically, while uh, claiming benefits. Oh, fair play, yeah, nice and loose. Okay, so we've talked about Andrew Gamble, and then obviously Andrew Gamble in a set like discusses these like the philosophical independence of it, and I guess the main other theorist I would recommend reading about neoliberalism is the big dog David Harvey, and in particular his book. Well, he's certain loads. I mean, he's you know reading Capital, you know, um, introduction to neoliberalism, isn't it? Is that what it's called? It is a brief history of neoliberalism. Okay, brief history of neoliberalism. And, um, shades on the cover there, isn't it? And neoliberalism is creative destruction. So Harvey's work is like really excellent. I mean, it contains loads of definitions of like neoliberalism as a concept. So it might just be worth busting out our first definition. So, you know, in which he says that it's an economic doctrine and a way of ordering everyday life. So he says neoliberalism is, in the first instance a theory of political economic practices which proposes that human well-being can best be advanced by the maximization of entrepreneurial freedoms within an institutional framework characterized by private property rights, individual liberty, free markets, and free trade. The role of the state is to create and preserve an institutional framework appropriate to such practices. Oh, shit, this is a huge quote. (laughs) The state has to be concerned, for example, with the quality and integrity of money. It must also set up those military defense, police, and juridic... Is it juridical? Juridical? Ju- judical? Judicial. 
Judicial. Judicial. I literally don't know. So just cut this. If bit. anyone can write in and tell us, it must also be. be it must also set up as military, defence, police, and judicial fun- judicial functions required to secure private property rights and to support freely functioning markets. Furthermore, if markets do not exist, so in areas such as education, health, social security, or environment. Um, or you know, public transport, they must be created by state action if necessary. But beyond these tasks, the state should not intervene. So, you know, as I said before, you roll the state back in some areas, mm. but m- it in move others. it, increase it in others. So he says that neoliberalism has, in short, become hegemonic as a mode of discourse and has pervasive effect- effects on ways of thought and political economic practices to the point where it's becoming incorporated into the common sense way we interpret, live in, and understand the world. So something will discussing the second part so there's loads of good things about david harvey's work i mean one of the good ones is he, he demonstrates how neoliberalism swept around the world and he talks about how this has been aided and like facilitated by global institutions like you know the world bank the imf uh, world trade organization so neoliberalism is like transmitted around the globe like through these large undemocratic institutions like in the name of capital and this is quite interesting actually given the discussion of like uh, hayek and co Harvey says, like, the reason neoliberalism has become so hegemonic and, like, dominant in society, he says, because it was really effective in anchoring itself to themes like democracy and, like, liberty. So he says for something to become hegemonic, you know, not, this is a quote again, not any old concepts will do. Um, He says a conceptual apparatus has to be constructed that appeals almost naturally to our intuitions and instincts, to our values and our desires, as well as to the possibilities that seem to inherit in the social world we inhabit. So the founding figures of neoliberal thought, as we just discussed, Hayek, Rand, he said they took political ideals of individual liberty and freedom as like their main selling points. His main selling points, yeah. He said that so they take these as the central values of civilization. He said, and he said, in doing so, they chose wisely and well, for these are indeed compelling and great attractors as concepts. So, like liberalism, like liberty, democracy, free will, these are all things that you you can't argue with. Like these, you know, who doesn't like those things, right? You know, he says these are appealing ideas in their own right, even if they had nothing in practice to do with neoliberalism or economics. But anyway, Harvey's important because he draws attention to neoliberalism as this like global phenomenon but not as one that's natural. It's not something that's just like natural. And he ties the spread of neoliberalism to the spread of US empire, just like Sam Panic, Leo Panic or Sam Gindin do. Although imperialism is something that also doesn't mean anything according to most commentators. Mm-hmm. So he, he's really interesting because he, he looks at the role of American empire in like importing, transporting neoliberalism around the globe, like often through warfare. Like the Iraq war, for example, you know, that was sold in... Yeah, you know. yeah. So, so he actually adds to Andrew Gamble's work because, I mean, he argues that the global capitalist elite were restrained by the welfare state. You know, they really sort of had, they were sort of beaten down by the welfare state. And also, it's important that in the world economic crisis in the 70s, you know, socialism, you know, not social democracy, but like radical socialism and like communism was emerging as a viable societal alternative to social democracy, particularly in Europe um, and South America. And he says like communist parties were gaining influence all around the world. Like, and this is why, why Harvey is so important, I think. I've said that about 10 times already. Um, but he is very important. <laughs> this is why Harvey's so important, I think. Yeah. Um, just well, keep looping that, is it? Yeah. I mean, he argues that neoliberalism is ultimately a political project. It's designed to prevent the rise of radical socialism and to reassert the control of political and financial elites. So he says, it's a political project concerned both to reestablish the conditions for capital accumulation, so like you know, 
the economy, but also the restoration of class power to this elite, which was sort of temporarily suppressed under the welfare state. So he's arguing that, you know, we do treat it as a political project, as a a deliberate thing, a a political thing that people are definitely trying to do, as well as being about economics. So this is the definition, really, of political economy. And he also draws attention to the role of the media, think tanks and others in, like, legitimating neoliberalism. You know, the assaults on the public sector, assaults on the trade unions, you know, they're all cheered on by a whole ideological state apparatus, in the f- which has been facilitated in turn by the corporate takeover of the media. So when we think about neoliberalism, I think we, you know, I, I've been guilty of thinking about, like, you know, privatisation of, like, you know, utilities and public services. We've, we rarely think about the corporate take over the media which is something that facilitates it all so he identifies four core components of neoliberalism one the privatization of public services so rail utilities like gas electric the Brit- NH- nhs your british telecoms yeah financialization so financialization means essentially the um the base of an economy especially the uk like moves from manufacturing and making sort of tangible things to complex financial products and in the uk that's like being centered around the city of london and that's how like the country makes its money third is the management and manipulation of of crises like political crises and like economic crises and four state redistribution so like the reorganization of the state to serve the needs of capital and away from serving the people so yeah like echoing gamble he says that neoliberalism was never about the withdrawal of the state it was about a qualitative restructuring of the state involving not so much less state intervention as a different kind of state intervention not aimed at the benefit of the population at large but for a benefit of the few so neoliberalism was all about redistribution but not from the rich to the poor but rather to elites from everyone else so neoliberal uh, neoliberalism is, is, a, is a form of corporate welfare so Again, can't stress this enough, the state is pulling back in some areas where, you know, so like the state no longer runs like the railways, uh, private companies do, but it's pulling forward in others to make sure that these things sort of happen. So how does this work? Privatization of public services, fairly easy to understand. Financial Financialization, fairly easy to understand. The management of manipulation of crises, point three, might be worth briefly talking about. Like if you've ever read Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, basically what David Harvey argues is that when we say the management of manipulation of crises you know obviously this is tied to war it's also tied to things like natural disasters so it's literally, literally when we say crisis it's, it's like uh, disaster and capitalism he, and he saw it, yeah. he calls it you know creative destruction it's literally when things like a country is destroyed either by natural disaster um, or by war and the u.s will sort of go in and completely use the destruction of the country and as a it, chance to completely restructure that country's economy. And, he, uh, and particularly... Uh, mean, the, sorry, there's I'll a guy um, called Anthony Lowestein, wrote mm. a book called uh, Disaster Capitalism, which is, like, deals yeah, primarily with li- that. Yeah. Um, so he talks about Iraq a lot as an example of you know how they use the destruction of other countries to spread uh, neoliberalism. So he says, in September 19th, 2003, Paul Bramer, head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, promulgated four orders... They included the full privatization of public enterprises, full ownership rights by foreign firms of Iraqi US businesses, full repatriation of foreign profits, the opening of Iraq's banks to foreign control, national treatment for foreign companies, and the elimination of nearly all trade barriers. And the orders were to apply to all areas of the economy, including public services, the media, manufacturing services, transportation, finance, and construction. Only oil was exempt. Iraq is like a um, an obvious example, probably most stark example of the US, like destroying a country and then destroying the state system and then rejigging the economy for the benefits of foreign capital. 
and you know companies like Halliburton. But we've also seen it, you know, you know the the, the Trump administration are doing it in Puerto Rico at the moment as part of the, like, the cleanup. They do it, you know. It's class when he's uh, checking out those paper uh, towels. It's, like unbelievable. it's <laughs> unbelievable. I know. Uh, <laughs> so, um, like mainly David Harvey and like uh, Andrew Gamble. So, I think we've got you know the philosophical independence of neoliberalism underpinned. It, under, you know, under you know, that's done. You know, it's about freedom and liberty, and you know, um, trade unions and government and things like that infringe on liberty. So, how does it work in practice? And it's important because neoliberalism, as we'll see when we talk about Wales, it embeds itself in different ways in different places. Or, you know, there are common themes, but it's like I'm trying to think of that. what's that animal? What's the lizard? It's like well, gecko, chameleon. Yeah, yeah, like well, yeah, like a chameleon. So it'll it'll it sort of adjusts itself to different countries' sort of cultural traditions. Mm. Okay, so Chile, Chile is, Ch- Chile is the I mean, the really the testing ground for neoliberalism, and as we've already spoken you know for Hayek and all those ghouls it would be a lot easier if politicians didn't have to deal with the public and if civil liberties were sort of removed or suspended this was like um the Chicago group wasn't it who kind of really really kind of got obsessed with Chile Chile. yes so in the 1970s you actually have a group you know the Chicago boys which is a group of economists and academics, you know, trained by Milton Friedman. You know, they go down to Chile in the seventies. Chicago town boys. And they help. <laughs> yeah, they bring their deep dish pizzas. Oh. <laughs> um, but they they help General Pinochet. You know, so there's you know, so you've got Salvador Allende. You know, this um, left wing democratically elected ruler of Chile is deposed by a, mil- a military coup by General Pinochet and a right wing dictatorship. The main thing he does is he reprivatizes all the industries that Salvador Allende's government has nationalized. In between with, executing people, yeah, and executed, stadiums, executed yeah. trade unionists, you know, disappeared Throwing thousands people of people. From helicopters. And this was all sort of his advisors with these academics who went down and said, "All right, okay, good, you've killed all the trade unionists and all the lefties. Now you can just like privatize everything uh, and open it up to like." Can you imagine the they US were like companies. taking a piss and be like, "Oh yeah, just kill them." Like, oh my fucking god! They <laughs> actually did it. Yeah. Um, so the labor market in Chile you know, quote-unquote, was freed from, you know, institutional restraints, i.e. trade union power. You know, thousands of people got murdered. But, you know, for freedmen and all that, you know, that's okay because, you know, at least they've helped control inflation now. People's so no, lives infringe on markets. Yeah, so there's no inflation in Chile because, like, um, and that's the main thing. Um, and actually, I mean, they didn't actually control inflation. Did they fuck themselves over a bit by killing so much, so many people because then they haven't got, like, a kind of spare labour market to keep <laughs> no, wages down? No, um... So they actually fucked up the economy of Chile massively anyway, mm-hmm. like even on their own, even by their own measures, you know, they, they didn't actually control inflation or anything like that. But what they did do, and this is what, the, the, as, uh, what David Harvey talks about, neoliberalism as a political project, they did transfer wealth into the hands of a tiny minority of capitalists who'd been, had their noses put out of joint by Allende. And this is what, like, David Harvey calls, like, creative destruction, you know, destroying the old, like, brutally and bringing in a new sort of economic regime, often through force. So the other two, like the little gap. Um, so Chile was like the testing ground for a lot of these vile economic policies, and is like you can see how authoritarian neoliberalism is because you know they talk about democracy, but you know actually democracy and workers' rights are actually terrible um, because they impinge on markets. So the best thing to do is to get rid of trade unions um, and to install dictators. And like the, so that, that as we'll see, the common theme is that neoliberals don't actually care about democracy because democracy is actually bad for markets. It's a lot better, you know, if you don't have political parties, you know, if you don't have a, a proper political system, if you just have one bloke. I mean, Bolsonaro in Brazil, mm. you know, what he's going to do, I mean, the reason, I mean, I think The Economist was, The Economist was like, this is a, a very good 
idea. It's an exciting time for Brazil. Yeah, and people and a lot of like you know capitalists were openly saying, "Wow, this is going to be great for the market." And mm. you know, because Bolsonaro is going to like crush leftists, crush open the sin. rainforest up. To yeah, like he's going to yeah, yeah, he's going to open the rainforest. He's opened up Brazil's. He's going to have loads of U.S. bases in Brazil now. But he is probably going to be really good for a certain amount of American corporations because he's going to you know allow them to in. He's going to probably privatize all elements of Brazil that aren't already privatized and you know public services in Brazil will go to the hands of like foreign mainly American owned companies it's um, class when he got stabbed in the belly yeah just wish he'd fucking get yeah, it off the head like. um, and the other two paradigmatic regimes are you know Ronald Reagan in the 80s uh, in America and Margaret Thatcher in from 1979 to you know, too, too long in the UK <laughs> Thatcher was like best mates with Pinochet you know murder and dictator she was also best mates with Reagan hmm. um the special, special relationship. Who was also a scumbag. I won't talk about Thatcherism like in, in detail as a specific form of neoliberalism, but it is worth thinking about Thatcherism because in, in Thatcherism you see neoliberalism is an economic doctrine, but it is also a political project, but it is also a set of social relations which changes like the heart and soul of society. So Stuart Hall is a really important theorist, also Gramscian, and his work on Thatcherism is really interesting because he talks about Thatcherism as like a cultural phenomenon and obviously that explains how thatcherism took hold um how thatcherism basically started changing the heart and soul of british society really yeah the honorary um, spice girl <laughs> yeah and like he in the 70s like the uk like the british left didn't really grasp that thatcherism was such a radical break with the past whereas like Stuart hall said that you know it represented something qualitatively new in British politics, and he says we must take account of the, how ra- the radicalism of this intervention, you know, and he looks at like how her brand of neoliberalism becomes this like popular movement, which actually worryingly like find does find mass support in the UK. Mm. So you know, how can we go from this like welfare state connotations and ideas of like solidarity and like collective public ownership in such a short period of time historically go to this like dog eat dog essentially evil that Thatcherism represents? So he says Thatcherism actually created like a new ethic he created she created this new like hegemonic common sense and just completely changed the rules of the game and actually interestingly he also said that like labor in like the 60s and 70s like laid the grounds for thatcherism because they started to move away from its links with the organized labor movement just to attempt to like police the crisis of capitalism and like labor in like the 60s started like side with capital because it believes it needed like capital on on side to get out of the economic crisis so labor started talking about like the national interest um rather than like you know the interest of the working class they started talking about the country okay so hall argues that thatcherism actually succeeded and this is like a big lesson for corbyn he says because if you're listening yeah but he says because the welfare state you know as much as we fetishize it in this country he says it was actually seen as democ- undemocratic you know it was a you know, centralized bureaucracy best it sort of did things to and like four people but he says it was ultimately this this stuff like british rail telecom was like outside people's control and he said it was largely experienced by people in negative and oppressive ways and it you know he said it was inefficient and it was you know undemocratic and he said thatcherism like in that context thatcherism like successfully managed to link itself to ideas like freedom and liberty and efficiency and it used it to like delegitimize ideas of the welfare state and what Thatcher did, basically, she actually found a means of like popularizing principles of neoliberalism. I mean, she created like a folk devil, which is still here with us today. You know, particularly like the welfare scrounger, welfare scavenger. This is similar to um, Reagan's welfare queen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, basically. And so, like, that's why Stuart Hall is so interesting because he looks at like the discursive construction of like a new set of values, organized around like 
traditional themes, you know, like nation, family, duty, authority, standards, which all got like condensed into Thatcherism. And so, like, and Mark, well, Mark Fisher, who we'll talk about later, argues that what holds neoconservatism and neoliberalism together is the shared objects of abomination. And he says the so-called nanny state and its dependents, like people who live on welfare, basically. And on top of that, Thatcherism actually threw in a massive dose of like militant nationalism, mm. which Anthony Barnett calls like Churchillism, which was exemplified by like the Falklands War. In Thatcherism, we can see the roots of neoliberalism as like a cultural project. And so what she actually says is economics are the method. The object is to change the heart and soul of society. And that's a direct quote from Thatcher. And she said, well, Ian, what's irritated me about the whole direction of politics in the last 30 years, it's always been towards the collectivist society. People have forgotten about the personal society. She's literally trying to undo conceptions of like the collective and, and really put ideas of the individual, me, 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 to like the forefront. And she, she says... People cast their problems at society, and she says, and you know, this is a classic, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families, and no government could do anything except people, and people must look after themselves first. So, <laughs> you know, so... There's no such thing as society. It's just groups of people living together, yeah, and <laughs> trying to get along in yeah. a way. Yeah, but I mean, like, but this is the, those are the, like the two most famous quotes about how Thatcherism, um, you know, starts to try to change... Like, like dismantle, uh, Dismantle, yeah. like, not just the welfare state itself... But like the actual underlying notions of like community solidarity and things which sort of underpin the welfare state, the idea that, you know, there are people who have like fallen on hard times, you know, some people need help. Um, you know, she's actually she's promulgating this like essentially dog eat dog world where, you know, all that matters is your own personal advancement. Okay, so practically what happens under Thatcherism is, you know, she there's a mass privatization of public services in the UK. So, you know, rail gets privatized, telecoms, communications get privatized. British gas, that British, goes. Yeah, utilities. So pretty much everything gets privatized. Any, everything that was uh, nationalized under the welfare state uh, gets rolled back and opened up to competition. But mainly, and this is what uh, the example of what Harvey says is neoliberalism, a political project, and what we say what happened in Chile. You know, so remember I said like Hayek, you know, he talked about special interests interfering with the market and like, particularly that meant like organized labor, yeah. like trade unions. So obviously like, you know, in... Chile, they killed all the trade unionists, and this like facility. This was great for the market yeah. and inflation. And obviously, one of the main significant events of Thatcherism, which is what we talked about last week, she crushes organised labour in the UK in nineteen eighty four. She beats the miners, and as what Mike and Gethin said, you know, they were re- this was something that was planned. Mm. And crushing the miners' strike it has an re- impact far beyond the UK because you know it reverberates worldwide. Because right wingers are looking around and going like, "Wow, look what she's doing. She's actually she's actually taking it to." organized labor she's actually crushing trade unions you know like sending police on horseback to communities it's not just you know this is a war this is at the same time as well that reagan crushes the air traffic yeah control yeah unions. and so yeah. i think yeah so in so inspiring that also inspiring thatcher you know ronald reagan in the u.s there's yeah, reaganomics yeah so massive attacks on trade unions you know huge attacks on the rights of work you know rise of insecure employment and then also um another not funny rise, but like weird vignette oh, of yeah. uh, Reaganomics was um, the workplace shootings. Yeah, so the rise of we'll we'll do that in another episode. Postal, I think. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, I mean, the, 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 yeah, but the actual the actual changes that Reagan makes to the everyday life in the US, in particular the work structure, leads to people starting to actually snap and um shoot up the and, and sh- shoot everyone up. Well, um, it's quite interesting though with that. I just a quick little like diddy is that um diddy the, <laughs> diddy the people who did commit the shootings in one report like. Uh, this person goes in and shoots up the office as like a printing press or something. But afterwards, no one blamed the person at all. No, not at the t- 
yeah, not in the op, not in the workplace. There no. are, and there's always warning signs. People, people are like, why would he do this? And then it's like, well, he was saying for ages that like he was being destroyed by management and, yeah. and new pressures and work. But um, ultimate, uh, funny enough, in the immediate police reports, everyone was like, well, to be honest, I thought, and they named three or four different people before they th- thought yeah, this okay, dude yeah. would snap. Like, cause it was just so kind of rampant and like a boiling oh, yeah. point. And then, so yeah, in Reagan, you know, he's significantly he smashes the air traffic controller strike in 1980 and like fires them all en masse that's another huge moment because it's like rather than like negotiate with organized labor and trade unions he was just like well you're all fired which is like right. which is unprecedented really at the time do you know mm-hmm. what i mean and also you know on top of that you know just like thatcherism has this stuff this nationalism and this stuff about um you know scroungers you know reagan you know gets into power using like racist rhetoric around drugs you know starts war on drugs you know he starts the securitization of the state, you know, the, the, the castrol of prison state, he starts to target black people. Sells, uh, uh, sells yeah. weapons to uh, Yeah, Iran. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and the arms, like, right-wing death squads in, like, um, in South America and, like, the CIA. I did int- not intend that to happen. And the CIA introduced, like, crack into the inner cities. Yeah. So that's how it worked. Like, you know, so Reagan and Thatcherism were the sort of the, um, were the first, like, and Chile, obviously, were the first examples of organization of society that we have now come to call yeah. normal. But obviously, at the time, these were like fairly radical things. And all, you know, what Thatcher, Reagan, Pinochet have in common, you know, is the enrichment of a very small elite amount of people, particularly those who are involved in running big businesses, and declining living standards for working class and middle class people everywhere. I mean, that's the material economic effects of neoliberalism is, you know, everyone pretty much gets poorer, mm. even the middle classes, you know, they get poorer. So that's why most theorists of neoliberalism, what they have in common is a belief that neoliberalism is politically, you know, it's a class project. It's to achieve the restoration of class power to the richest section of the population and take it away from the poorest who had like temporarily got like a seat at the table in like the welfare states around the world after World War Two. Everywhere in the world, where you know the neoliberalism is taking charge, you see declining wages, cuts to welfare, and this is sort of structural to the whole project. It's not like incidental; that's like deliberate. And like Harvey and Chomsky do loads of examples of wealth transfer from the mid 1980s. You know, the share of the top one percent of income earners in the U.S. reached 15 percent by the end of the century. So, the ratio of the median compensation of workers to the salary of CEOs increased from just over 30 to one in 1970 to more than 400 to one in 2000. So you have these economic effects, you know, people get poorer, but you've also got a massive ideological populist dimension which mobilizes people behind it, typically using tropes about, you know, nationalism, racism, self-help, you know, rugged individualism, like, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you always have, like, scapegoats. It's worth mentioning, like, the authoritarian element of neoliberalism. So, obviously, we said that, you know, in Chile, and, you know, as if, as if you know, Thatcher, like, you know, declaring war on the miners and, like, getting MI5 and stuff to bug them, <laughs> wasn't authoritarian, you know, and as if, like, Pinochet murdering people, trade unionists wasn't authoritarian and so on. But wait, there's, there's more. <laughs> yeah, there's a grown body of, like, political theorists, you know, from what I remember from when I had access to journals, um, <laughs> um, who, you know, they were arguing that actually the, like, the neoliberal state in our, you know, contemporary world, especially if you look at the US and in the UK, because they're always, like, the, what's not my say, the canary in the coal mine, they're, like, the outliers for neoliberalism around the world, especially the US, and then obviously the UK and Europe is, like, the harbinger of bad ideas like the um anyway the state is becoming increasingly militarized and authoritarian you know exemplified by militarized policing the growth of security services as you know increasingly that you know because the labor movements have historically been so weak they've started to realize oh we don't actually need democracy you know we don't actually need it at all because there's no there's no real challenge to us from organized labor or the left 
So with a collapse of like social democratic parties, it's given rise to this idea of like permanent austerity or like zombie neoliberalism with this what they call in living dead neoliberalism. It's something that's like been widely intellectually discredited, but yet it's apparently immovable due to the absence of feasible alternatives. And also because it's like actually kept in place by force, you know, by the state, by the police, by the courts, by prisons. And there's actually been a move away from seeking like consent for like hegemonic practices. So I mean like even Thatcher like tried to get people on board, you know, with like right to buy. Reagan did it with other well, you know, like racism and things like that. <laughs> but I mean But like you, you know, know, the whole Reaganomics was like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm empowering yeah, you. This is trickle down yeah, I can't do Reagan impression, but, but um, trickle down economics. But like Ian yeah. Bruff and like Henry Giroux and theorists like this, they said like, you know, under authoritarian neoliberalism, dominant social groups are like less interested in like neutralizing resistance and dissent via concessions and forms of, like, compromise that maintain hegemony, which is what, you know, Gramsci said was efficient hegemony was achieved by basically, like, keeping people on side. Instead, they start to just, like, explicitly just marginalise and, like, oppress people. I mean, you see that in, like, like in Spain, the suppression of, like, Catalonia. You see it in, like, the, the EU openly saying, like, oh, we're going to actually go and destroy Greece and mm. Spain. And now they've... Like, Italy as well. And now yeah, they've yeah. literally said to it, like, you can't pass your budget because we need you to pass an austerity budget and they're not even interested in getting people on the side anymore they're just like no you're the gonna best do deal is the yeah. best <laughs> you're just can't. gonna do this yeah like henry Giroux talks about like you know how the police have been militarized in the U- u.s that's really interesting and like the increased rhetoric of like national security especially following september the 11th how that's been used to, like ramp up and justify you know massive surveillance of everyday life something that's happened in the uk now as well with like the snoopers charter yeah patriot act was the u.s one, yeah patriot it? act and there's a slightly different populist rhetoric being used, as in now it's mainly about Islamophobia. You know, that's like the moral panic. So obviously parallels with like Thatcherism and Reaganism, but like it's just changed. And it's also like securitization has got a lot worse. It's interesting like to talk about um, the EU because you know, we know that all our Welsh nationalist listeners love the EU, um, even, though, <laughs> even though it's like the worst thing in the world. Like Ian Bruff uses the EU as a perfect example of like authoritarian neoliberalism. And he says like how the Troika... So the European Commission, the European Central Bank and its International Monetary Fund have actually institutionalized austerity as like best practice throughout the EU. And he says this is like a form of like disciplining of smaller states in particular. It's weaponized, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, and, and with Greece in particular, when you know Greece got into economic trouble, they they forced restructurings, forced privatizations, they enforced massive public sector redundancies and like loads of labor laws and healthcare programs have fallen under attack. In Spain, there were widespread evictions that were used as a means of forcing compliance with the the Troika's impositions. And so he actually says that, you know, the EU has become this massive tool of class discipline, you know, of discipline the working classes like across Europe, which is interesting. All right, so we touched on this. Stuart Hall, I guess, really started this when he talked about Thatcherism as a radical cultural project in works like The Great Moving Right Show. We're going to talk about now is neoliberalism as a social relation, and this is this is really, really important. We've talked about neoliberalism as a, as a political project, as a transfer of wealth from poor people to elites. We talked about it as you know the economic paradigm and how it entails like privatization. But the thing that often goes under the radar is neoliberalism as a social relation. So neoliberalism, there's a good quote by this guy, Ball. I've already mentioned it before. Neoliberalism is in our heart, in our head, our heart, and in our soul. And so neoliberalism, the, you know, the changes that were put in place by Thatcher, Reagan, Pinochet, all these freaks it's fundamentally altered the way we behave the way we think about ourselves and society the way we think about our families it just completely alters the way we view the world and it takes over 
our everyday life. It colonizes everyday life. And a lot of the work and academic research on neoliberalism is like a how it's affected everyday life. It's focused on the world of work. Although, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, it had massive, massive impacts on interpersonal relationships, you know, friendship, love, dating, you know, absolutely everything. I so, mean, Tinder's almost like a neoliberal version. Yeah, it, it, like, it, yeah. it, absolutely, it absolutely is. Well, well, so you've got like Richard Sennett, he does like the corrosion of character, you know, the personal consequences of work and the new capitalism. You know, it's like a study of like the, the personal, you know, affective changes, so affect, the psychological changes that the real reorganization of work has brought about and it's about you know no long-term work we're constantly on the move from job to job you know no, there's no long-term uh, contracts you know everyone's constantly stressed we're constantly contactable you know we're checking our emails at midnight in the morning but then, you know like you're saying like culture that's almost celebrated you know they're seen as yeah a of martyr. course yeah like you see it in like mcdonald's adverts yeah. where someone's staying till 11 o'clock and then goes to mcdonald's yeah. like oh you know we're open all... yeah so there's a new cultural apparatus which like has grown up like through the media and advertising to justify this like huge this societal shift and so like but like senate's book on like work shows you know, there's massive implications to like family life you know our relationships get destroyed by like the stress of like insecure work by the gig economy by the constantly checking emails our phones and like one of the people we're gonna get on the podcast dave frayne yeah um his book the refusal of work i will say that uh, i'm going through dave frayne's book a second time now because it's brilliant yeah so come on dave you know he, he he talks about how you know leisure itself has been colonized by work under capitalism you know so our leisure is like netflix mm-hmm. and like resting and we're only, like we don't know how to do leisure anymore because all our leisure is just like rest, hmm. you know, like leisure time is now just like lying down in front of the sofa to basically like recharge ourselves so we can go to work again. And that's not like true leisure. Frayne's book is awesome because he looks at how like work just colonizes. Yeah, it permeates every aspect. Every aspect. aspect. But um, in a historical context as well, seeing, so, you, know, you know, people way back when would only work to kind of secure their, their means and anything above that they weren't interested yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's just a case of like, you know, I reproduce my labor. So now I've got like five days free or something and one of the most interesting things about Frayne's book i think is the rise of like anxiety mm-hmm. regarding work because the working day has become like more fluid i mean he says we don't like clock in and clock out mm-hmm. and that's it you know we routinely you know obviously i have for the last like five years you know we work on weekends we work all evening you know and he says work has broken free from its temporal and spatial confinement of the working day and now forms assumes the form of a nagging and ever-present like to-do list as, as um, well it becomes tied to your identity you know like oh what do you do you know hmm. like well you don't list your hobbies or your interests you you know you list where you sell your labor absolutely so, so neoliberalism has impacted basically every um sector of public life and like so we say neoliberalism has got a logic and when we say that what we really mean is the logic of competition that's the most important thing for neoliberalism and capitalism because obviously performance has to be measured and quantified because you're not going to be able to sell things or um function efficiently as a business if you know you can't absolutely measure out you know every thing that's possibly quantifiable will be quantifiable and if you look at things like education is obviously the, the sector of society that i'm most familiar with there's books like Teaching by Numbers, things like that. It's about how education gradually has become marketized. Mm. Firstly, everything gets quantified. So you think these things like school league tables, you know, the rise of exams because you have to, everything has to be quantified. Because work is now like a massive competitive marketplace, you know, kids need like all these certificates and stuff to compete against one another mm. in like the this like hellish free market. And that's just sort of how it 
That's just how it is. Swimming certificates. Yeah, yeah, your badges. Like, yeah. And now it was accordingly, you know, because everyday life is a market, you know, we have to consume education. And so, you know, we've got perverse incentives like league tables, as you said, a rise of exams. And because schools and universities need to move up, like, league tables so they can get more money, they can get more students through the door. And one of the interesting things, like education in particular, is interesting because one of the ways of reordering everyday life, which accompany new liberalism, which most people will identify, well, not identify with, but identify, is the phenomenon of new public management. And new public management was this new ethos of essentially turning the public sector into a more efficient beast. And it involved essentially replicating the management practices and working practices of the private sector. Because some, some of the principles of new, uh, new public management, not all of them, but it's very important because you know, new public management has permeated like literally every sector society and it's like a it's neoliberalism turned into a set of like workplace rules and way of like managing yeah, corporate culture yeah sense, yeah it's neoliberalism distilled in a, a corporate culture which has infected everything you know so it's You've like being enthusiastic about your job you know like so it's like it's, it's characterized by you know like hands-on management which is like to do with like accountability like air quotes which they sort of they contrasted to the public sector which they said there was no accountability and like power was like diffuse so there'd be like clear structures of like you know so you like you're the ceo you're this you know so there's more like ranks you get more measures of performance and so the in- increase in clarification of goals targets and indicators of success and a new focus on like outputs measured by quantitative performance indicators so those are things like you know schoolie tables and it's also like you know if you look at every organization like the railway service or or indeed, like, you know, just any aspect of society will produce, like, infographics saying, like, what did we achieve this year? You know, it was, like, all our trips were on time, you know, um, yada, yada, yada. So there's all, yeah, all this is measured. Obviously, like, as you said, in Reaganomics, this put, like, in, in like, uh, Go and Postal, it shows how, like, new public management puts, like, massive stress on people. But more importantly is what Ball calls, like, the performativities. So what happens is the structural changes of, like, new public management and like changing the economy like to more of a marketplace and to be more competitive, you know, it is internalized and it presents us with new ways of thinking about ourselves, our value, you know, our job, our colleagues, you know, our, our families, relationships, grids, checklists, and like reviews. You start to internalize the value of yourself as defined by these measures. And yeah, so like, you know, perfor- like performativity impacts on like our identities. So, you know, you know, like you start to think about how many sales, if you're sales and how many sales you've made, if you're a teacher, it's like you start thinking, oh, how many of my kids passed their GCSEs? Because you have to reinvent yourself basically into something that can be like quantified mm-hmm. and measured to exist in like the new sort of corporate marketplace. You know, he said we're now required to make ourselves like calculable and visible you know, on LinkedIn, things like that, yeah, yeah. rather than like memorable. So he says, this is the reinvention of professionals themselves as units of resource whose performance and productivity must constantly be audited so that it can be enhanced. So, you know, we're constantly rewriting our CVs and, you know, our job application. And, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, not about your values or integrity. That It's about I have achieved. Your marketability. I, isn't I it? have yeah. achieved X, you know, my students... X of my students got this, you know, I've done five articles in these journals and it's all, you know. My market value is, you know. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, and so just like, you know, Hayek and that predicted or viewed unemployment 
as being something that was down to the individual. With like the gig economy, this has been taken now to its like hellish logical conclusion, you know. So um, responsibility for employment and health has now been removed almost entirely from the state and passed to the individual. You know, you work for Uber, you work for like Deliveroo, you work for all these companies and you know, you, they class you as self-employed, you know what I mean? And therefore, this is what these landmark trade union cases are about. Yeah. Companies are not giving anyone any perks, you know, everyone is responsible for I mean, their it's, healthcare. It's platform capitalism, like, isn't it? Yeah. Everything is kind of um, and if contracted you're an, out. And if, and if you're unemployed in this environment, you know, it's now because, you know, you won't work for long enough or you won't work for little enough money and it's yeah. like, well, you know. But by far and away the king of talking about life under capitalism is Mark Fisher. Yeah. Um, so Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism, is easily one of the best books I've ever read. I mean, we should probably have done a, a separate podcast dedicated to it, but we'll we'll go over it, basically. Um, we'll touch upon it. So, I mean, Gramsci, of course, like expands the notion of hegemony away from, like, you know, dominant ideas to something that is so completely total and taken for granted, you know, and Raymond Williams says it's a, a totality, which, like, saturates society to such an extent it becomes just unreflexive common sense. It's not even thought about because it's so... It can't um, be criticised, isn't it? Because it's yeah. just so... It's permeated. Yeah, so... Like, you know, you've got Francis Fukuyama, you know, the end of history. Yeah. That's, like, basically, like, a, a macro-level overview of the decline of, like, alternatives to capitalism with the end of the Soviet Union. So Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism, it's a micro-level analysis of, like, life and culture under neoliberalism. Um, and he, you know, it's an analysis of how neoliberal values and norms are enshrined and reproduced in pop culture in film in music in tv shows in in literature and it's just it's just an amazing book i mean like he actually argues that you know we're always waiting for the end of the world mm. and sort of finish with a big bang and he says you know he's actually saying the end of the world is already here you know he says we're living through the end of the world you know he says there's not gonna be a meteor or a big war he says you know we are living in a dystopia and i think that's really important um and he says capitalist realism is what is left when beliefs have collapsed at the level of ritual or symbolic elaboration and all that is left is a consumer spectator trudging through the ruins and the relic. You know, we're, you know, and we are living in hell. You Basically, know. Uh, the the plot to um, Clive Owen. Children of Men. Children yeah, of Men. Yeah, he goes on about Children of Men yeah. a lot. Yeah, so he says it's far worse than the 80s, what we're living in now, because at least in the 80s there were alternatives to capitalism. You know, there was like the working class movement around mm. the, the world um, that was organised, and the, the communist parties were strong. You know, the trade unions are strong. And you know, he said, and we had the Soviet Union. But, you know, he says most of us now won't have been born when there's any coherent alternative to capitalism. So the lack of alternatives isn't even an issue. Mm. So this is a good quote. He says, capitalism and neoliberalism in particular seamlessly occupies the horizons of the thinkable. It becomes increasingly harder to even imagine a life outside capitalism. So the, the central, like, theme of Fisher's book is there is no alternative, isn't it? So he mm. says that there is no alternative. There's no alternative to neoliberalism. It's impossible. What do you say? It's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Is that a Thatcher line as well? There is no alternative. Probably, yeah. But, I mean, he talks about, like, popular culture and music and how everything gets co-opted. You know, so we obviously use hip-hop a lot as our introductions, but he yeah. talks about, like, gangster films and hip-hop all actually reproduce this, like, doggy-dog world of neoliberalism and, uh, and Thatcherism, they actually sort of celebrate it because it's all about, like, money and it, it perpetuates the, the normality that this is the way things are. You know, it actually celebrates, like, you know... I've actually been using poker music, polka. Polka, yeah. yeah for the last Russian few Russian poker music, yeah. all right, sorry. I should probably listen to them really short. Yeah, yeah. Um, the episodes are actually empty. Just yeah, me, uh, me singing uh, off-key. Bear in mind, there's no alternative. He says the impossibility of things existing outside of capitalism. You know, he says even popular, you know, popular culture 
and music and protest stuff which used to be like counterculture and like outside capitalism about like a new world it just looks how easy easily things get co-opted you know pepsi using the black lives matter iconography alternative and independent you know no longer designate anything outside the mainstream capitalist culture you know they're just styles within mainstream capitalism i mean he, he gives a bad he picks on kurt cobain a little bit but i always think like tattooing is a good example yeah, you know yeah. like tattooing used to be the preserve of like you know people who are really on the outside of society you know like prisoners sailors Us. um punks yeah but you know look how this counterculture has been seamlessly integrated into like the idiotic mainstream often via like football and reality television but it's ridiculous now to even think of a tattoo as having any cultural or political meaning because it's simply become an aesthetic which yeah. exists quite easily within you know capitalism it's, it's just assimilated isn't yeah it's it? just yeah. body art and even like one of the most depressing things he talks about like even protests against capitalism often exist within capitalism you know anti-capitalism has now become like a standard feature of capitalism he talks about like live aid yeah yeah um, these are like what he calls gestural cap anti-capitalism you know these are these are not anti-capitalists. They're sort of co-opting all sort of protests into these nice like corporate festivals, essentially a protest. Yeah. He talks about Disney films a lot. I mean, he ruined Wally for me, which I think was actually a really nice film. But you know, Wally he uses an example of like the hell we're living in. Well, no, actually, you know, time after time in Hollywood films, you know, the villain turns out to be like an evil corporation. But you know, in Wally, he says you know the Earth has literally been destroyed by one by overconsumption by but it's, one. It's just seen as a hiccup, isn't it? Like, yeah, by one know. corporation. And he says like humans actually live off the Earth in spaceships, and they're fat and they drink like slop out of cups. Yeah, and it's like making fun of us, and it's like and a, the education is just yeah, like, you know, and it but it's like branding. and it's like a satire, you know, saying how awful capitalism is, and we've like literally ruined the planet, and they've left this cute little robot to just clean it up. Yeah, but he says like this kind of irony actually like feeds rather than challenges capitalism. He says, a film like Wally exemplifies what he calls interpassivity or passivity. So the film performs our anti-capitalism for us, allowing us to continue to consume with impunity. And he says, cynical distance and detachment and irony are just one way to sort of blind ourselves to the structural power of capitalism and neoliberalism. So we keep an ironic distance to things and we know things are bad and we moan about them on Twitter, but we just keep doing them. I mean, the other interesting thing Fisher talks about, which I think is really important, is like mental health mm. under neoliberalism. In Britain, you know, depression is now the condition that is most treated by the NHS. And, you know, he argues there's a massive correlation between rising rates of mental distress and the neoliberal mode of capitalism practiced in UK, America, Europe. So, yeah, and he says, you know, typical of neoliberalism is that, you know, mental health is treated as an individual pathology you know it's like oh, you know you need to practice mindfulness you need yeah. to practice self-help rather than accepting the things out of your control the, the, yeah rather than accepting these are structural problems you know the anxiety stress, of, yeah. of, of la a lack of secure jobs inability to find housing and he says there's a systematic refusal to consider that our, the crisis of mental health might actually be down to destruction of you know family life works you know stability the decline of leisure the rise of precarious work it's funny though because in work you have loads of uh, posters about like uh, depression and stuff and like yes. chat to someone. Yeah, basically. I mean, and that again, it, you know, it plays back into the um, workplace shootings, and they, they was like um, caused like severe mental health on people that they uh, ended up just taking everyone out. Yeah, they go insane. But like, yeah, so Fisher is um, just an incredible theorist, I think. And and like you said, Nick, like you mean things like Tinder. What that is is like it's it's basically like you know it's LinkedIn for dating. You know that's what yeah. I mean. That's what Tinder is. It's 
you're selling yourself to partners and judging partners on very shallow qualities and it's so disposable you just mm. like yeah, yeah. Swipe, 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 swipe. I, I did hear something quite interesting about Tinder is because it's so superficial. You'd never get like the, um, you you know, naturally build a relationship with someone and whether it's romantically or not, you know, is kind of taken out of it because it's just seen to feel like a need, not so much a sexual need, but like the concept of a partner. Yeah. Rather than the actuality of like wanting to be a partner with someone. It's just like a. If anyone's to, ever seen Married at First Sight, like, that is basically uh, what happens, isn't it? All right. Oh no, it's, it's Channel Four series where people just like want a wife or a husband for the sake of it, and then they list all their qualities. Yeah, I mean, and like there's countless examples of you know the way we look at our you know, we you know, there's no solidarity between work colleagues because we're all competing with each other. Bullshit. Well, I mean, like uh, you can see it in um, the Boots Riley film, Sorry to Bother You, which is, you know, about workplace struggle and like, you know, um, precarious working conditions and then trying to unionize against okay. a corporation and essentially like uh, the main character again, assimilated by the corporation. Yeah, I mean, it's just like everything absolutely gets co-opted. Yeah, okay. So, and you know, so why don't you try to think about ways that your life has been ruined by... Uh, right, us in. Um, by neoliberalism. But that's really important. It's really important you understand it as something that has, in fact, you know, has, has really changed the way we view... You know, we don't think in terms of our class. We don't think in terms of our community. We think about how am I going to get ahead. Uh, homelessness in Cardiff is a classic example. You know, it's it's viewed as a failure of the individual. You know, it's like, oh, well, these people have substance abuse issues. You know, they have uh, the, the concept of... Yeah, of it, homelessness as being to do with the lack of houses and lack of shelter is just seen as like no they know, want to sleep on the streets yeah, in the rain. It's like yeah so um that's another classic like example of close to home of everything sort of individualized under neoliberalism so let's round off by talking about wales and it's really important because we do think in wales that like we you know we're we're outside neoliberalism um and we're outside of capitalism because you know because of rodri rodri morgan's clear red water speech but if you can understand neoliberalism as a set of social relations in a way of organising society, a set of like norms, then you'll be able to like have a far greater understanding of like you know the nature of contemporary Wales. So I mean, like if you think about what Harvey said about about the restructuring of the state to serve capital, I mean quite clearly like the you know the, the nascent is it nascent you know the nascent Welsh state of you know the assembly, the Welsh civil service, and the third sector have been completely geared up to serve global capitalism, and that's absolutely evident in the overwhelming focus on foreign direct investment yeah. and you know this i mean leo panich says the state is like a conveyor belt for capital so on a, a macro level the welsh state is entirely designed to serve the interest of capital third, third sector as well like a, you know having bidding contracts to deal with like certain um you know yeah exactly parts, so like uh, to deal with it it's just insane and um you know and and so on a structural level wales is an entirely neoliberal it's not much of a state but the state institutions that do exist have been entirely focused now on attracting investment and serving the whims of like the international market rather than to benefits sort of the Welsh working class. So on a structural level, like it's it's quite obviously neoliberal. And if you're nerdy and boring like me, if you like actually dig deep into Welsh government minute meetings and things like that, you can actually find more obvious and insidious ways in which capital sort of permeates Wales. You know, you look at um you know the Welsh government refusing to develop a national care service. You know, which is what you know Jeremy Corbyn proposed and what Plaid Cymru proposed, and one of the reasons given in like one of these like plenary committees was like, oh well, if we nationalised care, you know, this would adversely affect the profits of some of our partners. And you look at the people who are advising the Welsh government on like the care system in Wales, and it's like massive care home companies. Well, uh, and look and, at Jack Sargent asking Tesla <laughs> if they want to build in oh, their yeah, Wales. A genius, like yeah. so. The, so on the so on the macro level, for you. so on the macro level, there's like quite obvious, like you know. 
the idea that Wales is like a social democracy. I mean, I mean, if you want to like go further back in more detail, like I mean, read Kerry Evans's stuff. I mean, Roger Morgan was not a socialist. Like that government was not socialistic. It was like you know, it was just a little bit more to the left of Blairism. You know, it's not that's not socialism. But anyway, um, but then if you look at how everything is ordered, so even if let's say hypothetically Wales was this like social democracy, which it isn't, but let's say it was, the way society is ordered is still not outside neoliberalism. In fact, if you look at you know, the Welsh university system is deeply neoliberal. You know, you've got league tables. You've got the highest tuition fees in, like, the world. Look at the school system. You've got league tables. You've got new public management. You've got target-driven culture for teachers. So Welsh Welsh people who, who defend evolution would say, oh, well, you know, schools aren't privatised in Wales, you know, like they are in England, and the NHS isn't, like, partly privatised in Wales like it is in England. I mean, firstly, I mean, like, there is PFI contracts in you yeah, know, Welsh yeah. NHS anyway, but just to get that like sort of uh, fallacy out of the way, even if okay, Welsh schools aren't privatised and run by ac- academies like they are in England, the logic of neoliberalism is still there in league tables, in the new public management that disciplines teachers, in the focus on exams and grades, in the PISA results, and you know, and hospitals in Wales are similarly. They have a target-driven culture. There's new public management. You know, they've outputs about how many, how how efficient they are, rather than like a social good. So in every way, Wales is infected by neoliberalism. Do you know what I mean? And, and like the idea that it's somehow outside neoliberalism is such bullshit. It's like it's laughable. But I think that comes from maybe a lack of understanding what neoliberalism is. So because neoliberalism, you know, it, it embeds around the world in different ways. So you've, you know, in Turkey, neoliberalism has sort of exists hand in hand. You know, privatization exists hand in hand with like this weird form of patriotic Islamism under um, Erdogan. Erdogan, um, you know, in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, neoliberalism coexists with like far more conservative cultures. But I mean, the the the, yeah, like, uh, the, the things are still the same. Privatization of public public services, you know, the logic of competition, and you know, the mass transfer of wealth to an elite, um, and the impo- you know impoverishment of the the bulk of the population. So in further episodes, we'll like do a bit more about you know the specifics of like neoliberalism in wales or you can buy my book when it comes out and read about it there um do both do both um any shout outs dan my shout out is to my amazing family and to my auntie dillis for letting us record in her house yeah um which is a new this is the headquarters. headquarters yeah. yeah um my shout out is to all for helping us um setting up everything yeah, boy. with um He's like the kind of silent partner in all this. You know, he does so much and he doesn't get any airtime. He's got a controlling stake. Yeah, he's got a controlling stake. And a uh, shout out to, well, I guess David Frayne's books is really good and hopefully he'll come on to the, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Peace. Bye. Yes, at first I was happy to be learning how to read. It seemed exciting and magical. But then I read this, Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. I read every last word of this garbage and because of this piece of sh- I'm never reading again! Hooray for Barbie!